You're listening to the Rob Review Podcast. Evan Rob and Laura Rob share their thoughts and opinions on teaching, learning, and leadership. And now, the Rob Review Podcast with Evan and Laura. This is Evan Rob, and I'm joined today with Laura Rob. This is the Rob Review Podcast. Laura, welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I think today we're going to talk about an extremely important topic. And I would guess that this is um, something that you are really, really excited to talk about. Absolutely. I think I've heard that before. Um, today we are talking about finding time for reading intervention. And as I reflect and I think about reading intervention, of course, I always think back to the the stellar years that I experienced when I was a middle school student. And I have shared this before on the podcast, and it is true, which is uh, I do not believe I read a book when I was in middle school. I simply sat and listened to have books read to me. So I really have no idea if I needed reading intervention or not because I didn't read. I just sat and listened to teachers read out loud to me. Well, and you know something, Evan? That in itself is funny and and sad, too, because, uh, you know, at some point, most readers need some intervention, and uh, the purpose of intervention is to help them get over an obstacle or, a, you know, a roadblock. And basically, uh, intervention should happen as soon as you notice there's an issue. So if you have a mini lesson uh, on making inferences um, and a child isn't getting it, then you want to try to start repairing the child's ability to infer immediately and not wait until it becomes a mountain and not a small obstacle. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And you know, of course, you know, when I think back to my middle school experience, um, I don't really know whether I needed intervention or not. Um, I probably did, but uh, everything turned out fine in the long run. But I can kind of move to now, and, and there are a couple things. There's one thing that I'm really proud about that I'd like to share uh, that's in my building where I'm currently principal. And we have created a micro block of time, and this is something that was actually created from staff in the building. Um, I had a meeting with them and uh, challenged them to find some ways that we could provide intervention for students during the school day because we were having trouble just as many schools do uh, trying to organize that before school or trying to organize it after school you know we didn't have bus transportation after school Uh, the kids that needed to stay were not necessarily able to stay so we created a 35 minute chunk of time that is in everyone's schedule five days a week throughout the building Right, and I understand it's not just intervention for children who are having some challenge with something they're learning, but it's also an enrichment block and that it's very fluid, that children can move back and forth. And I applaud that, Evan. Uh, The one thing I want to clarify is that uh, what's interesting about intervention when it happens in the core curriculum is that Um, definitely I want the teacher to try the strategy or the lesson again. But if it doesn't work a second time in a one-on-one situation, then you need to move to reteaching, finding another way to um, approach the child with the information so the child gets it. So let me um, make this a little more specific for you. And how about if you can share some thoughts about how intervention can occur during independent reading within a language arts classroom? 
that's the ideal time. Uh, I hope that most classes start off with 15 to 20 minutes of independent reading. And once everyone uh, has settled down, the teacher can probably within 20 minutes work with two or three students one-on-one, -on -one, or if two or three students have the same uh, issue, then you can pull those three and work with them together. Now, would this be potentially a guided reading activity as an intervention? No, the intervention is based on what the teacher has observed, watching the child apply a strategy that the teacher has modeled in hopefully an interactive read aloud, uh, or um, the teacher can identify the need for intervention by conferring with a student or by reading what a student writes about his or her reading. You, you know, I really appreciate you sharing the, the value of conferring with a student. And, and you that resonates. I know that you talk about that a lot. Uh, because you know, we live in a world sometimes where we don't want to make decisions unless there's some sort of assessment that a student has been given um, in order to get a data point. But one of the things that you always take me back to when you always communicate um, when you speak to teachers is the value of conferring with students in order to use that as a type of formative assessment to make good decisions. Absolutely. Evan, formative assess assessment is really what drives daily instruction. We can't wait for that once a year uh, data that comes in on a state test. And besides, I don't know how accurate that is. That's one test in one day of a child's life. In the classroom, the teacher is monitoring uh, students on a daily basis. So it is possible through observation by looking at their body language. A lot of kids will show confusion or act like they're disinterested immediately. I'm heading right to that child and having a small conversation to see if I need to talk to that child further. You know, and I, I want to clarify this even a little bit more. Um, many states across the United States of America have some sort of a standards-based test that's given at some point in the year. Typically, it's given in the latter part of the spring. Um, and, and absolutely, there are schools that, that mine that data and use that decision, use that data to plan personal learning, professional development, and, and at times, instructional decisions. But there are times when schools use other assessments where they're trying to gather data quickly before they make decisions on kids. And I know that you're not saying that that's necessarily the worst thing in the world, uh, but what you are saying is that there is value in conferring, and there's value in using your professional eye to make some decisions about what students need outside of always seeking a data point. Absolutely, Evan. Uh, you know, it's what the child does in reading and writing about reading on a daily basis that really lets you know where they are. Um, and and. You can have all the data. I need to see the child in action. And that's why uh, I want to confer with a child. I want to watch the child if I'm doing guided reading or if I'm doing a read aloud. And I want to watch them um, by looking at their writing to see are they able to think critically if we're working on that. Now let's, let's expand this a little bit, and maybe you can talk a teeny bit about reading partners okay. um, and how that could work within a language arts classroom. Yes, I, I, I am in favor of partnerships because, uh, first of all, reading is social. Uh, peer support is, is 
excellent because if a child is helping another child, they're almost thinking like a teacher, and I really like that way of thinking. When you pair students, you want to pair them so that they're no more than a year apart in instructional reading levels, so they have something to give to each other. The very low children, for example, in classes I work with, I work with the children who are reading in fifth grade or sixth grade on a kindergarten or first grade level because they need lots of intervention. They need my support. Uh, but I, I need to give it to them but not take away from other students. So the partnership is also another way to give you time to meet the needs of all students in your class because at some point even your excellent readers will have trouble with something and they deserve intervention and support as well. You know, and we'll talk more about this in future podcasts, but you know, what you're talking about is very compelling and it really resonates with me as a principal because I can quickly uh, figure out that you're not talking about a language arts class where every student is reading the exact same book at, at the exact same time because clearly uh, the types of instruction, the types of differentiating, uh, the, the types of rotations that you're talking about within a classroom would not exist in that type of classroom. Absolutely, Evan. We have to meet children where they are so that they can improve. The situation you had where you said you didn't know if you had intervention because you never did any reading, well, you know, you're very fortunate that you are a reader now, but a lot of kids don't take that route. And the more you don't read year after year, the further backwards you go. You know, one final thing I want to talk on, and this is really my, when I put my administrative hat on, uh, and say how important it is for administrators to make sure that money is being allocated for books. Um, that is books for classroom libraries and books for a school library. You know, I can say that, you know, I certainly I get a lot of contacts from companies that want to sell one program after another uh, and that the program will be some sort of magic to turn kids around. Um, but as I've told, I've said before on this podcast, and Laura, you and I talk about this a lot, I have yet to see a program that made that makes a student love reading. You know? yeah, and I've been around in education a little longer than you, Evan, and I've never seen a program uh, that makes everybody into a terrific reader. Actually, it's having uh, books to, and choice and a very skilled teacher uh, who knows how to watch, to intervene, uh, to listen to a child uh, during a conference. But putting aside money for books is key. We want every English language arts class to work towards a goal of having 1,500 books in their classroom library. We can start off with an infusion of five or 600 and build it every year. What we also know from studies is that there is a 5% loss because kids lose books or they, they take them home and they can't find them. I'm happy if they take them home and, and, and they really almost don't want to bring them back. So we need to budget that in. But every year, we should have enough money for every teacher to add 200 to 250 books to their class library. Yeah, you know, I think that's an important message. And I think in a time uh, that more and more technology is brought into schools, and, and of course you and I are big proponents of technology, um, we should not lose sight of the importance of allocating money to support reading through the purchase of great books for classrooms and for school libraries. 
So, Laura, this wraps up our podcast. Uh, you'd like to thank you for our conversation today. This is clearly something that, that you're very passionate about, and I appreciate you sharing that passion with our viewing audience. This is Evan Robb with Laura Robb. We hope you've enjoyed the Robb Review Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the Rob Review Podcast. Check out our blogs at therobreviewblog.com and tell a friend. Thanks again, and see you next time.